Parsha Vayishlach. This is a big parsha. A lot of stuff going on. What happens in this week's parsha that any Zionist should notice? Yaakov comes home. He finally decides at the end of last week's parsha, it's time to go home. We talked about that a little last week. How do you know when it's time to go home? And this week he comes home. Right? Right? Next week, by the way, it'll be Vayeshev. It's interesting why they're two separate parsha. We'll talk about that next week. Okay. And what major event occurs as Yaakov is crossing the border? Nope. Esav is coming towards him. Now, this is not, you know, something that Yaakov hasn't been thinking about. It's not every day you run out from your father's house because your brother says, I'm going to kill you, right? Yaakov obviously takes Esav very seriously. And so part of Yaakov's decision to come back home is that he's going to have to confront Esav. And it's clear in the Pesukim that, that this is coming. Um, one of the, the, the most difficult aspects, so you're Yaakov Avinu. You're a Navi. You, 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 you have received the Bechora and the Bracha. You're blessed. The future of the Jewish people will be with you. Hashem tells Yaakov he will be with him and the future of the Jewish people will be with him when he goes down to Lovin's house and he tells this to him again when he gets ready to leave. And now Esav is coming towards him with 400 fighting men. 400 fighting men, by the way, is a very big army in those days. Just to give you a perspective, Avram Avinu conquered the known world, won really what is, at least in the Tanakh, the first world war, with 300 men. Esav has 400 men. That's pretty stark. That's pretty serious, right? Well, he's Esav, you know, needs a little extra, right? So now you're Yaakov Avinu. How do you feel knowing that Esav's coming towards you with 400 men? Give me a, a, an adjective. You feel scared. Can anybody prove that to me from the Torah? It says that he felt scared. It says, Yaakov is very afraid. Pretty obvious question, right? Okay. Um, does anybody have a piece of paper? Yeah. You have a piece of blank piece of paper? Just rip me out a piece of paper. We're going to have a demonstration. Okay? Okay. You ready for this? Ready for this? What is this? No. This is Esav. What is this? This is a Kosh Baruch Hu. Kosh Baruch Hu meets Esav. That's it. What is Yaakov scared of? What are you scared of? You're running up a hill, they're shooting at you. You shouldn't be scared. It'd be interesting to see what Gash Baruch Hu, what he wants. If he wants me to walk off the hill, I'll walk off the hill. He doesn't want me to walk off the hill. You silly terrorists. Gash Baruch Hu runs the world. Fire away. At least if I had a Muna, that's how I should feel. So you know you have to do your stadlers. <laughs> okay. But you're Yaakov Avinu. What does this mean? He's not just He's really afraid. Which is translated in the English as distressed, which of course doesn't tell us anything, but we'll get there in a second. There's a detail in this week's parasha, which is represented by this pasuk that gets overlooked because there's so many big issues in this week's parasha. Right? Dina and Shechem and and Yaakov coming home to Israel and Esav, but there's a deep Yaakov fighting Esav. What is that about? 
There's a detail here which I really relate to, which I think carries a much bigger message that is worth discussing. You know, I had a, a really close friend, and I'm not going to talk about him because I'll lose it, but I'll tell you about him on Yom Zikaron. His name was Danny Majid, Hashem Yikom Damo, and he will be 20 years old forever. And um, he was in a, in a mutzav uh, called Milano, um, just above the Awali River. And they, this was their second shirut in the days when I was, went into the army, Hezder had, they did, I forget what it was, nine or 10 months in the army. Then they went back to Yeshiva for six months. Then they went back in for another six months. That was just the way they did it. Now they do like 14 or 17 or whatever it is months in one stint, which actually makes a lot more sense, although it has its challenges. So this was their second stint. And there was Dernikim, and they were supposed to be going, you know, they'd been in Yeshiva for six months, they'd only had 10 months of training, so they, you know, they weren't being put on the front, front lines. They were still going to Lebanon, they were still a battle-worthy unit, Givati, but they were like, you know, in the middle somewhere. <laughs> Except that while they were in this Shirut, in this six-month period, for reasons that are beyond the scope of this discussion, Israel was gradually trying to scale back their operations in Lebanon, and so they pulled down from the Beirut-Damascus Highway down to below the Awali River. Okay, the idea was now the Awali River, which is a gazunter wide river, right? It's not quite the Hudson, but it's a lot bigger than the Jordan. This would now be the de facto border between Israeli army troops sort of in the security zone and the rest of Lebanon. The theory being that was enough territory to protect the border of Israel from terrorists. You don't need to be all the way up in the Beirut. So what happened was that this group of Hezdernikim, who were in the middle of the Israeli security zone, were now on the front lines. All of a sudden, their position was right on the border. And it didn't take long for the newly formed organization called Hezbollah to figure this out. And the attack started. And um, the officer who was in charge realized that they were being watched. It wasn't difficult to figure out. Started changing up their patrol routes. And one of the things that they did, they were actually attacked. They shot RPGs at them. They got into a firefight. They came out of it unscathed. They actually had a Sudas Mitzvah as a result. They felt that Hashem had saved them. Like two days before sort of what happened happened. And the commander decided that they were going to switch up their patrol roads. This is like an instinctive thing. It's just part of, you know, you learn what to do when you're an officer. You don't want them seeing that every day you get to this summit at 10.05. So one of the things he did was he took them on a roundabout way to get to their patrol points. And so they found themselves walking through a melon field. Field of melons. Okay? And um, everybody's walking through the melon field. Now, when you walk through a field of melons, so the melons is like on a vine, and they're sitting on the earth. And you're on patrol. And you're keeping your eyes peeled for terrorists. You're not paying attention to the melons. So what naturally is going to happen? You're going to squash the melons. Right? It's a little squishy. Okay, you know, you don't think about these things. You're walking in mud. You're walking in garbage. I mean, it's like Adar. So that's like the end of the rainy season. Danny gets really upset. He gets really upset. He says, guys, you're walking on these melons. Right? You, you got to be careful. You're destroying somebody's melons in somebody's field. And the guys say to him, dude, like, we're in Lebanon. We're on patrol. We're not worried about these melons. He says to them, and he made it his mission to tell guys they shouldn't be walking on the melons. You know, this came alongside, by the way, the fact that he was upset that people were picking cherries. They're beautiful cherry orchards in Lebanon. Anybody who ever served in Lebanon, I mean anybody, 
ask them about cherries, they'll tell you about the cherry orchards. Now, they're so good, like sweet. You know, and for someone like me, it was great. No trumas, no masas, no shemitah, no issues. You're up in Lebanon, you're covered. Except for one little detail. Whose cherries are they? But you're in no man's land. There's like a minefield over here. There's a border over there. Like nobody's farming these cherry orchards. And nobody pays attention to that thought. Except for Dani Majitz. Because Dani Majitz was a tzaddik. So Dani Majitz says, how do we know we can eat these cherries? And nobody's listening to him. So he manages to get Rav Amital on the phone. Now you have to understand, this is 1984, 85. This is before there are cell phones. You know, you get like a phone line, you don't get to use it all the time, everybody wants to use the phone line. To use your precious time, precious time for a few minutes with the phone to call the yeshiva, never mind you get the office number, never mind where's Rav Amital until you finally get him. It took him days until he finally was able to get a moment with Rav Amital and he asked Rav Amital, are you allowed to eat these cherries? Right? They probably belong to a non-Jew. Does he have Yeush? Can he assume, right? So Ravamital told him, Beferish Lalacha. Anybody want to take a guess? No, you're not allowed to eat the cherries. For a lot of reasons, you're not allowed to eat the cherries. So he made it his mission to tell the guys in the unit they weren't allowed to eat the cherries. Which was alongside, I know they loved him for this, right? Which was alongside, years later I talked to a good friend, Yosef Marziano, who was in that unit and was with him on these days. Said he didn't, you know, they weren't big fans of his, right? You know, but they stopped eating cherries. There's Denkin, right? And then on the 19th day of Adar, in 1985, they went on a patrol. They were on Gesher Kasmia. Uh, they were attacked by a Hezbollah terrorist unit, three guys with two RPGs, and Dani Majitz and Didi Cohen were killed. And so that story made the papers. How do you deal with. War and civilians. How do you deal with that? You know, there's now a whole, there's a command that came to the Israeli army. It didn't exist when I was in the army. Because of a lot of the fighting now, is in urban warfare. Urban warfare is an extremely difficult type of warfare. Um, you know, if you're fighting out in Shetach Patuach, in like open areas... So tanks take a large swath of area. They don't have to deal with every individual soldier. But when you're in an urban situation, you know, in Beirut, and in Ramallah, in Aza, so you can't leave somebody in a building behind your troops. Because one guy in a machine gun from a third floor window could take out a whole pluga, take out a whole company. So you've got to take every building, every floor, every room. You could spend a whole day in one building. Now just sort of draw a picture back and imagine what it would be like to take Aza with two million people in it. You know, people who write, yeah, we should just take Aza back. It's not a simple thing. One of the commands that came out, because now it's clear that, uh, you know, Hezbollah, Hamas, they all use civilian areas to protect themselves. You are not allowed to open fire on machine gun fire, right? The, 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 the gun that you have, the machine gun, M16, whatever, Galil, it has three settings. It's on safety, which means you can't fire. It's on Boded, which is single fire, or, or automatic fire. You're not allowed to open up on automatic unless you can see the people you're shooting at. So what that means is, if you're a three-man position, and there's a whole bunch of Hamas terrorists, and they're moving forward, but you can't see them, and they're in a civilian area, so the, the, the easiest way to keep them at bay is just to open up with a machine gun fire. You're not allowed to do that. Why are you not allowed to do that? Like, it's against the law. You can be put in prison for doing that. Why? Because you might hit a civilian. Now, I checked because a student that I have told me this law and, and this, this command was not in place 25 years ago. 
And I went looking. There is not a single army in the entire world. Not the American army, not the British army, not the French, not a single army in the entire world that has this order. None. Why do I bring this all up? Because listen to this Rashi. This is actually a Medrash Tanchuma. It says, by the way, Medrash Tanchuma was um, probably the, certainly one of the earliest collection of Midrashim. These are lessons, as it were, deep messages from the period of the Tanaim. You're talking about mid-fourth century of the Common Era. And the reason it's called Medrash Tanchuma is because Rabbi Tanchuma Baraba was sort of, some say he collected many of these teachings, some say just that he, they started with his teachings, but that's why it's called Medrash Tanchuma. But okay. So this is in Parshat Vayishlach, and it says the following. Okay. Lama Why does say Vayira? He's afraid. And Vayetzer, he's distressed. Vayira Shalo Yaharog. He was afraid because he didn't want to kill. Vayetzer Shalo Yaharog. And he was distressed because he didn't want to get killed. So I understand the guy who's nervous about getting killed. Why is Yaakov nervous about killing? And especially when you consider who are we talking about his killing. He's talking about killing Esav. Esav said, Beferush, you know, Yekrevu Yemei Evelavi, when my father dies, I'm going to kill you. Right? By the way, as an interesting aside, right? and, and by the way, what principle do we have from the Gemara and Sanhedrin? What do Chazal say? If somebody's trying to kill you, Amen to the line? If somebody's trying to kill you, you're allowed to kill him. In fact, you may be obligated to kill him. So why is Yaakov worried? That's an interesting question. By the way, as an aside, it's interesting that Esav says, when Yitzchak dies, I'm going to kill you. Is Yitzchak dead yet? He is not dead yet. So what's Yaakov worried about? So some of the first say, well, Esav doesn't mean till Yitzchak dies. It just means around Yitzchak. But if we're on the border somewhere, Yitzchak isn't going to hear about it. I'm not worried about it. Okay. Right? So that's interesting. So listen to what the Siftei Chachamim says. The Siftei Chachamim... Siftei Chachamim, by the way, was of Shabtai Bas, okay? Otherwise known as of Shabtai, right? He was, uh, he was a Rav who uh, originally was in Poland and moved to... Was it Poland or Lithuania? Moved to Amsterdam. And he wrote a commentary on Rashi. It's, it, it's really a w- well worth the read and, or the learning... And very often he has very distinct, succinct comments. They're not long drushos. But sometimes you'll have an understanding of what Rashi's talking about that you would miss otherwise. So listen to what the Sifte Chachamim says, right? This was published by the way in the 1680s, okay? In Amsterdam. Clearly Yaakov is not worried about killing Esav. Because it says if somebody's trying to kill you, you can kill him. Yaakov was afraid that in the fighting he would kill some of Esav's camp. And they didn't come to kill Yaakov. In other words, what would you call them? Innocent bystanders, right? Right? She said, but wait a second. Okay, so maybe they're not trying to kill Yaakov. But they're part of the camp that's chasing Yaakov. Right? So what do we call them? Somebody who's chasing somebody else. What's that called? A rodef. So if you see somebody who's a rodef, right? If you see somebody who is trying to kill someone else, 
Right? Right? So, even if you want to say he's not trying to kill you, he's still a Rodef. So, it's okay to kill him. Because he's a Rodef. He's, he's chasing after you. He might kill you. Right? So, the Sifti Chacham says, oh, wait a second. If you could kill him by just wounding him, right? So then you have to wound him. Now this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Dafa'in Dalit and the 74th folio says the following. The Tanya Rabbiyotan Bar Shaul Omer Rodef Shaya Rodef Achar Chaveiro Lahorgo Somebody who's chasing after another to kill him. And you, can, and you can save him with one of his limbs. In other words, Shmala is running after Zini. Right? And I think Shmala is going to kill him. And I'm a sharpshooter. So I know that I can take out his ankle. And then I'll end the story. But it's easier to just, you know, do away with him. So what does the Gemara say? If you could save Zini by just wounding the Shmala Rebbe, right? The Loitzil, but you didn't do that, and you killed him, Chas Shalom, Neheragalav. If I could save the person who's being chased by wounding the chaser, and instead I kill the chaser, I'm Chayav Misa. I become a murderer. That's unbelievable. So, Sifti Chav says, that's why Yaakov's nervous. Now that's also unbelievable. Yaakov is nervous because he might accidentally kill a civilian, Esau's trying to kill him. In other words, this idea that the Israeli army takes such concern over not hurting innocent bystanders, it isn't just an ethos of the Israeli army. It isn't just something that comes from Rashi. It comes from the Medrash Tanchuma, it comes from the Gemara, it comes from Yaakov Avinu. This is part of the DNA of the Jewish people, which is fascinating, right? Why... Why do we see this to such a degree? Right? By the way, I'll point you something interesting. I, have, I don't have an answer for this. I just noticed it today. Um, but it is worth noticing. What do you notice that's different about the Medrash Tanchuma and the same quote as it's quoted in Rashi? The Medrash Tanchuma says the following, right? The Medrash Tanchuma says, He's afraid that he doesn't want to kill. That he shouldn't be killed. What does Rashi say? Rashi says, quoting the Tanchuma, right? He's afraid he'll be killed. And he's distressed because he might kill. What's the difference? For some reason, Rashi switched. Rashi switches the order. Now I went looking. I thought maybe this is the wrong Nusach in the Tanchuma. Maybe it's the wrong Nusach in Rashi. I looked up three different Rashi texts and manuscripts. Couldn't find anywhere in Nusach the Mizrahi. That's the Nusach and Rashi. And I looked up different texts in the Tanchuma, that's the Nusach and the Tanchuma. Look, it could be that Rashi had a different Tanchuma in front of him, but he changes the order. Not sure why. It's an interesting question. If you come up with a good answer, let me know. I have a theory, but I have no basis for it, so I'm not going to say it, but it's an interesting question, right? So, so there's another interesting detail here. What happens as a result of this whole discussion. Now, what does it mean that Yaakov is afraid of being killed? Right? Like, if a Baruch Hu runs the world, 
Why are you afraid of being killed? And if a Kodesh Baruch Hu runs the world, why are you afraid of killing? Whoever's meant to die is meant to die. So the latter question is actually not so difficult because just because somebody's meant to die doesn't mean that you have to be the vehicle for their dying. You don't want to be the vehicle for an innocent person dying, even though there's no such thing as an innocent person, according to that theory. But why would Yaakov be afraid of being killed? Like, that's a very strange idea. Right? Yeah. Is it so impossible to say that even Yaakov was like, sword, scared of sword, like, like a normal thing? Could be. That's Pshat. Pshat is, Yaakov's human. And he's been living with Lavan. And his Amuna is a little... In fact, what did we say last week? We said that Yaakov is dreaming about sheep. So who's talking to him? It's a malach. And when a malach talks to you as opposed to Hashem, it's because you're distant. And it could be that one of the affectations of, of Yaakov's distance is that his immune has been shaken and he has to develop his faith again. He has to be completely confident. Right? Okay. So Yaakov has this whole story with Esav. And part of it is the more obvious, shot-based, public display of conflict Asa, 400 men, Yaakov, Yaakov splits his camp, they get together, they hug, did they really hug, and that whole story. And then there's that middle bizarre story, which by the way somehow relates to Hanukkah, I'll leave you to think about how that is. Yaakov splits up his camp, and for some reason he is left alone, which is very strange. He should either be with this camp or that camp. So the mentor says he crosses back over the river because he forgot, they remember what? Pachim Ketanim, little, little pot, something. Right? Where's the only other place that we find a pach in Tanakh? The pach Shemen of Hanukkah. Pardon? It doesn't say a pach. They're anointed by oil, yeah? There are three times, and each time it's anointed the beer again. It says the word pach? Yes. Oh, good, good chap. Okay, pardon? The word pach is not a Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so Rashi is using the word pach, and the word pach is also used by Hanukkah. Yeah. So the Sfasemis connects those two. But again, that's for Hanukkah. We'll get to Hanukkah. Don't worry. Oh, oh you're going to have fun with Hanukkah. Pardon? That's actually debatable, but we're not going to go there right now, right? You're right. It's not included in Haftal Kitve Kodesh, but that was the debate. But let's not get off track, right? So that's not our topic. So, okay, could be the Yaakov is afraid. Could be. Could be that there's something else going on here, right? All right. But it's interesting, you know, the Shulchan Aruch and the Choshen Mishpat paskins this way, okay? There are four sections to the Code of Jewish Law, to the Shulchan Aruch, right? There's the Evan Ezer, the Orachayim, which is what we study. That's basically the laws of regular living, uh, the laws of Tefillah, laws of Shabbos, etc., etc., right? Then there's uh, Yoridea, that's Yisuf Heter, laws of Kashrut, Nida, etc., then there's Choshen Mishpat, and that's, um, that's really all of, that's all of, um, Evan Ezer, by the way, laws of Ishus, relations, you know, marital, whatever, Gitin, Kedushin. And Choshen Mishpat is all the laws of business and ethics, etc. So if you look in the Choshen Mishpat and Simon Tafkaf, which is 420, right? So these are the halachas of Chovel Bechavero, of doing, da- of Nizikin, of doing damage. And, and the Shulchan includes this idea in those halachas. So what does he say? By the way, this, uh, sorry, Tov Chafalov, this simon, listen to the coterit of this simon, the title. It's, Hamivayesh Somebody who embarrasses somebody accidentally or hurts somebody accidentally. The, 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 the Shulchan puts these two together. The Torah puts them together. Fascinating. So what does it say here in Allah uh, Yud Gimel? 
talking about two guys who are fighting and they injure each other, right? So there's a whole discussion if somebody's trying to injure you, are you allowed to injure them? Is it a mitzvah to injure them? Are you liable if you injure them, etc.? Right? So also, if I could injure you less, if you're trying to beat me up, and I know because I'm a master yin-yang, whatever, that I can poke you in a pressure point and I won't hurt you and you'll just writhe in pain. But instead I'm annoyed at you, so I rip your eye out. So I could say, you know, listen, you're trying to hurt me, I'm allowed to do that. So if I use excessive force, and if somehow you could prove that I need to use that excessive force, then I'm liable, even though you attack me, right? And then he gives our case. You can hurt a person who's trying to hurt you or to stop him from hurting somebody else, but only up to the point of limitation. In other words, there is a limit to how far... I'm, I'm allowed to push the envelope. Now, what's interesting about this is that what Yaakov is dealing with here is not a halachic dilemma. What Yaakov is dealing with is an ethical dilemma, right? Yaakov has an ethical dilemma. What is he allowed to do? What is he not to do? What is the value of life versus pikuach nefesh? At what point do I put my life before someone else's life? Who says that my life is redder than someone else's? So if someone's trying to kill you, clearly you'll let it kill them. But here's a person who's innocent. So now a Hamasnik is using civilians as cover, and I have to make a call. Which is more important, protecting my life or saving the life of the civilian? Is it legitimate, by the way, to risk the life of civilians when it might kill you? That's a very difficult question, right? And it becomes a life or death situation. How far do you go with this? You know, so you're, you know, I remember an officer's course. They pounded this into us. Um, the base commander at the time of officer's course was a guy by the name of Shalom Ufaz. And I remember we had a full day seminar on this topic. It's called Torah HaNeshek, Purity of Arms. And it was about 8, 8.30 at night. And it was our last discussion for the day. Uh, there's like a window of a few days where you sort of go back to base and you're having all these ethical discussions about being an officer. <laughs> and in walks the base commander. Now, base commander, you understand, when you're in officer's course, you're not even an officer yet. He's like God. So all of a sudden, you know, the room is electrified. He just walks in and sits down. Everybody stands up, attention, whatever. He's like, no, 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 whatever, right? And we're sitting and we're just a pluga. I mean, the base is like, I don't know, 600 officer cadets, I imagine, <laughs> something like that. And we're like 30 guys in a room. I later found out that he spent a half an hour, an hour with every single group. And he planned that this seminar and this day should be different for each company because he was determined to sit with each company of officer cadets that were going through this, 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 this process through the, whatever it was, four and a half month course. And he would not leave the room until every single cadet agreed with this position. I never saw this before. It was legitimate to have different perspectives. He refused to give in until everybody saw it from his perspective. What was the topic he was talking about, right? Okay? So you don't sort of really understand what he's talking about until later on <clears throat> you get into the reality of life. You know, you're, I don't know, you're going down an alley and you're in a tank and there's a tube sticking out from behind a wall and the tube starts to move. 
and you suddenly realize that it's an RPG. It's very easy to recognize an RPG. You could wake up a tank commander at 3 o'clock in the morning, 30 years later, show him a picture of an RPG at 1,000 yards. He'll be able to tell you what it is, what its rate of fire is, how quickly a guy can aim it, the whole nine yards. Because every Friday morning you got tested on this stuff, and if you didn't get it right, you didn't get out for Shabbos. So you knew this stuff cold. And you suddenly realize there's an RPG coming out from behind an alley. Now, an RPG is, you know, sort of the most simplest of anti-tank weapons. You aim it, you press the trigger, and that's it. You can run away. Takes two seconds. You're at a distance of 30 yards, right? The, the guy holding the RPG is coming out from behind the wall where the Aaron Kodesh is, and your tank is maybe the other end of this room. It's really not far. You can't miss. You don't have time to bring your gunner to bear, right? Your gunner is, is inside the tank and he's looking through a viewfinder that's magnified eight times. And, and basically wherever he turns the turret, right, and puts his target on in his viewfinder, you know, that's the target. But if the gun is facing this way and the guy is standing there, he can't see it. So you train to bring the gun to where the gunner can see the target. But you train for doing this at like, you know, four kilometers, you know, like if there's two tanks all the way out in the horizon, you got to bring the tank around so that the gunner can see what you're looking at. If there's a bazooka east at 300 yards, it's a little more complicated because you really got to ring it right on. But 30 feet, you don't have time. So you have an override control. It's called a mashbet. It's like at your sort of down here as you're standing in the turret. And you reach down for it and you pull the trigger so that you take control basically of the turret. Right? And you have a fire button. And there's a guy jumping out from behind an alley. He's got an RPG. It's all loaded. You're reaching your mashbit. Whoever fires first wins. Now, on the one hand, you can't miss. You don't have to hit the guy. You've got a shell always in the breach that's multi-purpose, right? If you have a, there's a certain type of shell that's for armor piercing. It's called a chash. But if you fire, but if you fire that armor piercing shell at a guy at 30 feet, it'll just make a hole in the cement. It's not going to do anything to him. And if you have a purely anti-personnel, you know, like a zarchan, which is like phosphorus, which is great against infantry, but if you fire that at a tank armor that comes around the corner, it won't do much. So you need to have a, it's called a meich, it's a shell that does both. It can blow a hole in a tank and blow up, but it also, when it does that, it just hits the side of the building, it sends shrapnel everywhere. So that's what you have in your breach. So you don't have to hit the guy jumping out from behind the wall. You just have to hit anything within three, five yards of him. You can hit the wall, you can hit the ground. So you're just bringing your gun, pressing the trigger, you're about to fire. You're just waiting for him to get out so you're sure you'll hit him. And then you realize why they spent all this time preparing you for this. Because it's an eight-year-old kid. Now, this kid didn't do anything wrong. They called them RPG kids. I, I saw them in Hebron throwing rocks. And, 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 and holding Molotov cocktails. I saw them in, in Aza shooting pistols. That's what they did. They trained children. They relied on our hesitation. And you don't have like, you know, two hours to sit and do a seminar on this. You've got like a second. And if he fires first, we were in Magachim, you know, they, they peel away the, the armor of those tanks. Your tank will be hit. Your driver will probably be killed. You'll probably be killed. The tank will probably be stopped. The tanks behind you then can't move. For all you know, this is the beginning of an ambush. But on the other hand, it's an eight-year-old kid. You can't blame an eight-year-old kid. He's been brainwashed to shoot an RPG. Right? Did you ever see the beginning? What was the name of that movie? Uh, it's about an American sniper. Oh, American sniper, right? Okay. <laughs> so there's a scene at the beginning of that movie. I saw this with my brother, right? We were both in uh, Lebanon. 
And we both like had a freak out moment watching this scene because that's exactly that scene. And the guy is saying, don't pick it up, don't pick it up. I could totally relate to that. So what do you do? You don't have a choice. But that's not a halakha question. That's an ethical question. Whose blood is redder? That's what Yaakov's afraid of. Yaakov's not afraid, I think. Yaakov's not afraid of Pashat Halacha. Yaakov's not afraid of, this is my opinion, you don't have to agree with this, right? Yaakov's not afraid that he's going to get killed. Because if he gets killed, he's an Olamamis. And if he gets killed, it's Muhammad's Mitzvah, it's against Esav. Yaakov's afraid that that part of him that can become great gets killed. Because the greatest damage of the war, of the war is the people who survived and came home a mess. You know, um, Rabbi Cordoza, Renatan Lopez Cordoza, uh, fascinating personality, huge Talmud Chacham, did a PhD in philosophy in Oxford. And for a while, he actually worked at Israelite many, many years ago. So I got to meet him. I don't know him well anymore. His writings have become interesting. But, uh, but anyway, he once told me an amazing story. He was, he's very big into like interfaith conference, like Rav Nagin. And he was uh, somewhere in Chutzlaritz at some interfaith conference. You know, Muslims and Christians and Jews all getting together and singing Kumbaya and whatever else. And, you know, and good things come of this. And um, these three guys come over to me sitting him in the lobby. Okay? And they say to him, are you a rabbi? And he says, yes. And he said, well, can we ask you a question? He says, sure. So one of them is their spokesperson. He says, look, we've asked this question of our reverends and our priests. We can't get a good answer. He says, we've totally lost our moral compass. The three of us were in Vietnam. We did a year's tour. And we've totally lost our moral compass. And it really bothers us. And we want to know how to get it back. He says, when we went to Vietnam, some of the things that we had to do, going into villages, shooting at women and children, whatever else they did there, right? He says, it, it made us sick. But by the time we left, we could do it for sport. And he looks at Rabbi Cardoza, so he tells me, and he says, I could walk out of here right now, pull out a pistol, walk up to some random person, shoot them in the head, come back in and sit down. It wouldn't bother me a bit. He says, but it really bothers me that it doesn't bother me. How do I become a caring, loving person again? Right? So put aside Rev Cardozo's answer, which if you're curious about it, at the end of this year, in five minutes, I'm happy to share with you. That's the problem here. The problem is not whether technically you get killed. You die on the day you're meant to die. And you hope that you've done good things before you go. And when it's time to go, Kosh runs the world. You know, history is full of people who left this world, and the world goes on. What's frightening is if what dies is who you are, is who you could be. And that's what Yaakov's afraid of. That's the real battle with the world of Esau. The real battle with the world of Esau, you know, part of the battle is that they're going to meet on the battlefield, but part of the battle is that Esau gives Yaakov a hug. And when you hug Esau, you become a little Esau. You get a little closer to the world of Esau, and that's what's scary. You know? Do you become too armied when you're in the army? Now this becomes an interesting topic because this isn't just limited to whether you happen to go to the army and serve in Aza. This is, this is a life challenge. 
This is, this is going to college. This is doing business. This is making decisions when you're a doctor. This is going to somebody's house as a plumber and knowing that you could charge them $200, you could charge them $400, right? What part of you controls your destiny? What part of you lives and what part of you dies? That's the challenge. It's not just the halacha question. It's, it's the moral dilemma, you know? Do we, are we bothered enough do we struggle with this? Does it concern us? Does it challenge us? By the way, if this is true, if the whole message of this story is, is not about the result, because that's a Kersh Baruch Hu, but whether we struggle with the decision, whether, whether the greatness, you know, people think the great thing is like, oh, how amazing. Some guy was standing throwing a, I remember a moment where somebody had a Molotov cocktail, lit the Molotov cocktail. We had orders, ridiculous orders. You weren't allowed to fire at someone, right, unless they were actually throwing the Molotov cocktail. Now, that's a ridiculous order. Because by the time he's throwing the Molotov cocktail, that's seriously dangerous. You see a guy, it's usually a teenager, he's got a bottle. There's a rag sticking out of it. He's 20 feet away from you on a highway. You're not going to stop him. There are cars going by with Jews in them. You're not going to stop him before he throws the Molotov cocktail unless you shoot him now. But the order was that you had to wait until he lit the rag, threw his arm back, and was either about to throw it with no other recourse or throwing it. Because if you could still yell, Wakif, if you could just still yell at him to stop and he would see you and drop the thing, then you had to do that. Now on the one hand, that's the equivalent of the Gemara and Sanhedrin. If you could injure him without killing him, you're chayev to injure him. On the other hand, there were guys, so I heard, right, who would just, you know, they would shoot the guy in the leg, in the knee, they would try. And then later when the report was written, he was throwing it. Because you see a guy lighting a Molotov cocktail. It took me a while to understand the power of that order. And in my unit, I told guys, I insisted, like, unless they felt that someone's life was in imminent danger, they had to attempt not to shoot someone, not to kill someone. Because Bachar runs the world, it's not your decision. But the issue wasn't whether you kill the terrorist or the terrorist, because that's not the issue. The issue is what part of you dies. Does it bother you? If you're in the middle, I remember we were in a riot in Hebron, okay? And it was, I was on Miluim. I'm married, I have kids. That's a whole different level of army. People think the big army, you go for a four-year, that's not the big deal. You're 19, you're 20, it's a big adventure. You're married, you have kids, you're in the middle of life, you have to stop, you go, and you're much more aware, you're more mature, you understand that you could get killed, you understand what's going on, and your daughter won't have anybody walking down to the chuppah. And they, they, they took us to Beit Jubrin for three days, you know, every time you go to Milliam, you do this sort of prep session to get yourself back into the zone. And they're telling us all these stories to get us, you know, in the mindset. And, you know, we're doing maneuvers and practicing and riflery and whatever to get back in the, you know, you got to get back into the headspace. And this guy comes to a presentation of the, you know, sort of the area we're getting the challenges. And he tells us his story. I don't remember anything else about those three days, but I remember this still. This must be at least 10 years ago. He tells us that there was a, that they went to a riot and that we should know the, the importance of wearing our flak vests and our knee braces, whatever, because they take these marbles. You know when you have a set of marbles, there's like the little ones and the big ones? They collect the big ones. And they have these slingshots, right? They have two sli- types of slingshots. 
Right? They have a, a, a kelach and a rugatka. The rugatka is like what you see in the comic books where they pull back the rubber. Right? That's actually not as good. The kelach is like a little pouch. And they have like a rawhide and they swing it around. And then they flick their wrist and they're very good at it. They can hit, a guy can take a marble and he can hit that clock from across this room. That's how good they are. I've seen this happen. And they're aiming at you. And they hit this Samach Mampeya, deputy company commander, who of course is in the front. And they hit him in the kneecap. And they totally shattered his knee with this marble. And he's finished with Miluim. And they told us the story. This is the Miluim right before we were there. Well, needless to say, every time we went on a riot, guys were taking wads of newspapers and stuffing them down their pants, whatever. It's scary. So now you're at one of these riots, and there's a kid, and he's somewhere in the middle, and he looks about 15 years old, and he's got one of these, one of these kelachs, and he's swinging it over his head. And you know with absolute certainty, he's a 15-year-old kid, you know with absolute certainty that you can aim and you can hit him in the head. He's 40 feet away. And they may figure out it was you and they may not figure out it was you. And you could probably say later on, he was aiming, you were afraid for your life, you take the risk. But he's a kid shooting a marble. So most people think the issue is what do you do? That's not the issue. That's actually simple. You can figure these things out, make the decision in advance, you know this is going to happen. And when it does, you do it. The issue is, does it bother you? Do you have that second? Do you struggle with it? Because if you don't struggle with it, if it doesn't cause you pain, the Gemara says that when the Malachim were singing Hallel at Kriyas Ayam, HaKadosh Baruch Hu quiets them. Banai tovim bayam. Ve'atem sharim halel. My creatures, my creations, my children are drowning in the sea. They're Egyptians. They're wicked. They're evil. They're Nazis. But they're human beings. And they're drowning. And you're singing Hallel. It should pain me that Egyptians are dying. Even if it's the right thing to do. And that struggle... That hesitation, that difficulty, that pain, that pain can be translated into many moments in life. That dilemma, that's what changes Yaakov into Israel. Only when Yaakov struggles with this and overcomes the struggle, it's the struggle that makes him a prince. And I think it seems to me that that's one of the hidden messages. I think that's what the Sifti Chachamim is talking about. There's a lot more to talk about on this topic, but that's a little food for thought. Think about in life, as you go out into life, what are the things that should give me pause? What are the things I should struggle with? And that will make you a better human being. A little food for thought on Parshat Vayishlach.